Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, and then uh, questions 49 through 52 on page 873. The red hymnal, we'll read those answers together in just a minute after we read God's word. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, sermon text for tonight through verse 24. As with many of our catechism lessons, we'll jump around to many scriptures, but this will help, uh, help get us focused on the issue here. As we consider it, hear God's holy and inspired word, Deuteronomy 4.15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance As you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land, I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Question 49 through 52. Let's read the answers together as we consider the second commandment. Which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship 
and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. As I'm sure perhaps is the case with many fathers and their young adolescent boys, my dad and I had an an ongoing uh, relationship regarding mowing the lawn. That was kind of my main job growing up. And uh, I confess that I I didn't always enjoy doing it. In fact, most of the time I probably didn't enjoy doing it. And looking back on that, it's it's a great lesson in my own mind about the manner of things. It doesn't just matter that you do things, but how you do them. Uh, Oftentimes, of course, I would be just eager to get it done as quickly as I could, and and didn't take long for my dad to kind of look around the lawn, and and you see all of the spots that I had missed, and he would try to point those out, and I'm sure he wasn't perfect in doing so, but I'm certain he wasn't malicious in doing so either, and I believe that oftentimes I did not receive it graciously, and he knew what was going on. He is, he's no fool, and he had been around the block much more than I had at that point. His son is just trying to get the job done. I didn't really care about it. Uh, I didn't want to do a good job, just kind of check off the box, but he saw my heart. He saw how I was doing it, and, and because I was going about it in that way, what, what was going on? I wasn't truly honoring him. Uh, I, I didn't have a posture of receiving what he had told me and understanding that there's a, a certain manner that I am to go about doing all of this. And that is a, a reflection of my heart, what's going on in my heart. And, and if my heart is going to be undivided in the sense of wanting to please my father, then that is what will honor him. He didn't care about the length of the grass, as supposed to some degree perhaps, What he wanted was a son who was going to understand what was going on in that relationship, what I was understanding and being trained in about falling under his direction and wanting to please him. The manner of things is so important because of the way that it connects to the heart. And there's a bit of a picture in that for worship with us because when God says and commands us to worship Him, He is very concerned with the manner in which we do it. And He is very concerned with the how and and the way that we go about it. And He does that, of course, because He is zealous for His name. But He also does it because there's a a transcendent reality that if, if we're the ones who are writing the rules 
to do it. If we are the ones kind of coming up with our own ideas of how we are to honor and worship God, then what we will produce will not be fitting. It will not be honoring unto God. And so we must tether ourselves to his instruction because he cares about the manner in which we do things and because if we go off and do things for ourselves, what we produce will be sinful. What we're dealing with here is issues of worship. And God cares how we worship. That's always an encouraging thing just to think of and recognize off the bat when we think about the second commandment. God cares about our worship and how we worship and that we worship. And we should be encouraged by that as we come together for worship that this matters to God. It's not that he's, he sort of stays aloof and he kind of catches just a couple of sounds and he may be pleased with them, or he may take notice, or he may, he may not. No, God is profoundly interested and concerned with how his people worship him. The second commandment is a wonderful uh, beginning to understand how it is that we lean into the worship of God and do it in a way that pleases him. The commandment itself comes to us uh, as a way to forbid worshiping by images, as we read in the Catechism Answer. So first tonight, why? Why does God forbid images? The reason he does so, or the reasons that he does so, all bring us back to who he is. If we understand who God is, then it will make much more sense why uh, he forbids us to worship in this way. So as we mentioned, the second commandment grounds the principle that it's not enough simply to worship God in any way we like. We can say, well, uh, I'm going to worship God and I'm just going to do it in my own way. That's not good enough. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, in quoting another scripture, says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah 29, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. There are people who say that they are worshiping God, that they are really ultimately paying lip service to him because God sees their hearts. It's not enough to just have that external factor of worship. So Wilhelmus Brockel says this, We cannot have the opinion that God will be pleased with us just so long as he is served, even if it is in a manner which is acceptable to us. What that is called is will worship. We're purely worshiping God according to our own will, according to our own ideas. Will worship is to say that, yes, God deserves to be worshipped. In other words, there's this superfluous recognition that God is glorious and he deserves praise. Yes, we should worship him, but he should not be concerned with the means or the manner of our worship. That should be left to us. And we can see the many ways in which that would become so problematic. This is why the second commandment is distinct from the first certain uh, parts of Christendom 
have combined the first two commandments and we keep them uh, distinct for this exact reason. That the first commandment really is, yes, you are to have no other gods before me. We are to worship this God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are also to worship him in a particular way. And what that way is ultimately is just according to his word, according to his instruction. This then brings us to the question of of idols and images. Now, of course, in Old Testament times and in Israel's kind of cultural milieu, this was an enormous thing. And then at uh, the time of Christ, the Greek and Roman empires, idols, of course, a huge issue, not as much of an issue in the Western world today. But let's consider it, uh, at least external and physical images and idols in that way. Let's consider the issue as a whole. How did it happen? How do we explain the history of religious idol worship in the world? What was going on when pagan peoples would create an idol to their God? What it actually is, is an attempt to harness the power of a God in order to turn it to one's benefit. It was something that they would use to kind of get the, uh, the winds of fate pointed in their direction. They wanted things to go better in their life. And, and who doesn't want that? We want circumstances to go well. We want it to be well with us. And so this was a way for people to have good things happen to them. Uh, theologian Jay Dauma, who wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, he says this, Often the comparison is made with electricity. High voltage is dangerous. So too is divine power. High voltage is fatal if we cannot control it. In the same way, the image of a deity functions like a transformer. Treacherous high voltage is reduced so we can use it with far less risk. In other words, it would harness, it would channel the power of a god. It's also important to recognize that when idols like this were created, it was not in order to represent a god's actual form. They weren't saying this is how this god or goddess would appear to our eyes. But rather, it was a way to represent their power, what they were known for, what they could do. That's what an idol most often would symbolize. So even in Israel's own history, they weren't saying that Yahweh has the appearance of a golden calf. It was some kind of recognition of his power in bringing them out of Egypt. Goddesses of fertility were often pictured with exaggerated sexual characteristics, not because they thought they appeared that way, but it was what they did. It was their power. An idol, once again, harnessed this god or goddess's power. So this author, J. Dalma, goes on to say this, Naturally, handling the image and its divine power requires great care. A system of rituals and ceremonies is needed to receive the desired blessings from the gods, to let good things happen to you. As long as these actions are performed in the proper way, people are guaranteed to get the gods on their side. So return to my... Uh, lawn mowing illustration at the beginning. Let's say my heart was still the same. My heart really wasn't in it. I just wanted to get it done. But I was very careful to do a good job. I was very careful to not miss 
any, spo- any spots, make sure that there's, you know, it's all done well. I'm not enjoying it, but I do a good job. Well, from this old pagan mentality, there would be nothing, if you do the rituals the right way, there would be nothing that could sort of get fate turned against you. But again, what we see in Scripture is God looks upon the hearts, so concerned about the manner of things and those inner realities. The greatest, I think, scriptural example that this is not how God operates, He does not operate according to these categories, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when Israel goes up to battle against the Philistines. And I'll read uh, uh, a large part of this passage for us. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You see what's happening here. The battle is going against them. And they say, well, what can we do? What should our response be? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. That will turn the tides of this battle. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God, this God, cannot be manipulated. He cannot be used. He cannot be uh, used in this way to turn things into your favor. But then the temptation is... The Philistines, who were, you know, they were afraid when the ark came into the camp. We're going to be defeated now. That they have this great power that is with them, so they operate by this mentality. So now, what do they think? They think that their gods are greater than this God of Israel. So they can take this ark of the covenant and they can certainly place it in their own temple right before Dagon, which is exactly what happens in chapter five. And chapter five makes the opposite point. See, in chapter 4, you might be tempted to say, well, there's not much power in the Ark of the Covenant, is there? In chapter 5, you get the reverse reverse side of the coin to say, no, this God is powerful beyond belief, but that power cannot be manipulated by human beings. So when the Philistines captured the Ark, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. 
When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they put Dagon and put, took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted them, the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. The story goes on, and and these kinds of problems continue for the Philistines. When it was brought into camp so that the Israelites thought they could win the battle, nothing happened. When the Philistines brought the ark because they thought it was a trophy for them to show how their gods were greater than the gods of Israel, they're all afflicted with tumors. Why? Because God is free. And when you try to bring this pagan mindset towards the God of Scripture, you are misunderstanding His freedom. He cannot be manipulated. He is utterly sovereign, as the the Catechism says in regards to the Second Commandment. Why does God have the authority to tell us how we are to worship Him? Because He is absolutely sovereign. And He determines the course of action that people take. So, if we were to seek to worship the God of Scripture through images, idols, it would be to misunderstand His freedom. You cannot channel or harness His power in that kind of a way. It would also be to misunderstand His majesty. God is is not capable of being represented through anything that we would produce. He is too majestic. He is too holy. He is too transcendent. In Deuteronomy 4, it says this, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. This is a God who is so glorious that He dwells, when He appears, He dwells in this utter darkness as Israel saw it. But then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, that not that God dwells in darkness, that He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. The majesty of God is a darkness that we cannot penetrate, and the majesty of God is also a light which blinds us. All of this is to say God is beyond our reach. We, when we study God, when we learn about Him, we're not going to fully wrap our minds around Him. And thus, if we keep in mind His majesty, we would understand that we cannot make any adequate representation of Him. And God does not come under the watchful eye of humans the way that we come before Him. One theologian says, all lay open and naked before Him. But the reverse is not true. God does not lie open and naked 
before us. That's from Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. To seek to worship God through images would misunderstand his freedom, it would misunderstand his majesty, and it would misunderstand his covenant. It would misunderstand his covenant. The covenant that God makes with his people all throughout Scripture means that you don't have to create an image of God or create idols for him, for he already has our good within his purposes. Go back to the way that the Philistines or the pagans, anyone who would create these images and idols, how they would operate. Again, it's a way to harness divine power. It's a way to turn the winds of fate in your direction. But the covenant that God makes with his people is that he binds himself in faithfulness to us. And he is not capricious. He does not change. He is not sometimes for us and other times not for us, even though our circumstances sometimes would make us think that or be tempted to think that. He is always for himself and he is always for his people. And what he demands is that we trust him. What he demands is that we have faith in him. What he demands is that we rely upon him and that we receive from him and that we humbly dwell before him. What is the spirit that would make an idol or an image out of some superstition, out of some desire to harness that power to please or appease a God? It is a spirit which lacks trust. But if we serve the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is absolutely in control of all things, and he says, I have your good and my glory purposed in all that I do, then what he wants from us is our trust. Both in Deuteronomy 4 and in the second commandment, there is this naming of God as a jealous God. Now what does that mean? We, we come at jealousy with a rather negative idea because in our own human minds we know what jealousy is when we experience it. But what that means, Elkanah, jealous God, It's a God who takes vengeance. But if you think about what happens in the second commandment, when God says, don't make any idols in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below, which is really just a way of of having an all-encompassing forbidding of making images, heaven and earth and the waters under the earth. But then remember where the second commandment goes, that He visits the sin to the fathers of the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But he shows love to a thousand generations, to those who love me and who keep my commandments, those who keep his covenant by faith and trust. So the jealousy of God is that which compels him to, yes, punish sin, but in, a, in an abundant way, in a superabundant way, to give his love and his blessing and his defending and his purposes in favor of those who love him and who keep his commandments. 
unto a thousand generations. We should always think about that when you read the second commandment, that there's a third and fourth generation of punishment, but blessing and purposes unto a thousand generations to those who love me and who keep my commandments. What we should think, one of the things we should think about when we come to the second commandment is this. Do we seek life in God as a gift or do we try to secure life for ourselves? That's at the heart of the second commandment. Do you try to seek life? Do you seek life as a gift, eternal life, or do you try to secure life for yourself? If you trust God, if you understand his covenant, then you will seek it as a gift. So that is why God forbids images. It misunderstands his freedom, misunderstands his majesty, uh, misunderstands his covenant. So many reasons why God uh, does it. Those are three. Uh, We come then to the consideration of how all of this is presented to us in the scriptures. What does the second commandment mean throughout the sweep of scripture? The sweep of the scriptures. What we see is that Jesus Christ is at the center of the second commandment. One theologian, Edmund Clowney, puts it this way, commenting on this passage in Deuteronomy 4. When the law was proclaimed at Sinai, the Israelites saw no image of God. They only heard a voice. The picture of God was not complete. We see the same element of incompleteness in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was kept in the tabernacle. It had a lid of gold on which there were figures of two cherubs. Even when the glory of God rested above the cherubim, the lid on the Ark, known as the mercy seat, was vacant. That void contained a promise, the empty mercy seat. The one must come for whom that seat was reserved. The throne is reserved for Jesus Christ. No man or idol can sit in that holy seat. The jealous love of God will not tolerate idols, for God will send his own image, his incarnate son, to occupy the empty seat. The second commandment is given to God's people because God was saving worship for Jesus Christ. He is at the center of the second commandment for he is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And now in these last days, God has spoken to us in particular in his son, as Hebrews chapter one tells us. The second commandment is about the worship and the centrality of Christ who would come and be the one who would be the mercy seat, the propitiation that would turn away the wrath of God against us, who would be our righteousness, who would be our guarantee of eternal life. He is God in the flesh, true God and true man. The second commandment saves worship for Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? That means that all of our worship must be centered around Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean, of course, that we don't worship all three persons of the Trinity. Of course we do. But Christ is the one by whom we enter into the Holy of Holies. We are sanctified and cleansed by His blood. And thus all the worship that we do must be centered upon Jesus Christ. How then is Christ seen? Because if 
The second commandment is about Jesus Christ. How do we see him? In consideration of uh, the way that God brings these things to us, Jesus Christ is seen most principally in the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Christ is seen with the eyes of faith as he is set before the people and presented from the word of God. So the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus was not crucified in that region. We know where he was crucified. Paul says in a sense that 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 picture was painted before you. Jesus was put on display. Why? Paul says that, of course, because he was preaching the message of Christ. He was opening up the word of God and he was showing them Jesus Christ. When the word of God is faithfully expounded, when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is set before the people of this earth. We are called to give allegiance unto him. Jesus Christ is seen in the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Christ is seen also in the sacraments. We witnessed baptism this morning, come to the Lord's table. It is the same thing. Why are those given to us? Those are given to us because of the weakness of our faith, because our, our faith can be tested and It can enter points of weakness. And God gives those to us to nourish and strengthen our faith. The waters of baptism, the bread, the wine of the supper. These are assurances. And what do they signify and symbolize? Christ. The cleansing power of Christ's blood. The sufficiency of His body and blood. The way that His body is the bread of life. And his blood is the blood of the covenant. And it nourishes us. We see Christ with the eyes of faith. In word and in sacrament. And we also need to consider. Why do we as the reformed. Why do we not fill our lives. With portraits of Jesus. A couple of considerations. One thing is this. Because if if everything is about Jesus Christ, if the second commandment is about reserving worship for Jesus Christ, okay, well now Jesus has come. So why don't we just, why don't we have pictures of him? Why don't we have portraits of him? Why don't we have our worship filled with those kinds of things? Because would that be helpful to see him? No. Because the Bible does not describe the appearance of Jesus, and that is a very significant point. That this is the most important figure in human history, and and the gospel writers knew that, and the apostles knew that. There was never anyone like Jesus, and there was never going to be anyone even close to as important as Jesus. They all knew it, and none of them gave us a description of his appearance. Why? Well, certainly that's God's will that it would not be so. We are not made to know how he looks and how he appears. If we were to try and make a portrait of our Savior, furthermore, there is no, there's no way that we could represent his divine nature. He would appear to us as a man, and yet that's not the full story of who he is, to put it lightly. 
He is God and man. There's a divine nature, and there's no way for us to represent that. So nothing would be a faithful representation of Christ. So we don't fill our lives with portraits of Jesus because we we believe that it breaks the second commandment. There are other issues that Christians, evangelical, reformed, many things to work through that we don't have time to unpack tonight, but we ought to be very cautious about all of those things. Is Jesus then only seen in preaching the gospel and in the sacraments? Well, there's another thing that we uh, saw and you can see throughout the New Testament. and The way that believers are conformed to the image of Christ. So there, there's a way in which as the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, the things that we do make Jesus Christ known and put on display, in a sense, to the world. So the church is the image of Christ, and believers are conformed to the image. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. As we read in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We need to understand that what God is doing in our hearts, as we talked about this morning, to make us a distinct people, to make us a people who are passionate and zealous for His glory, to understand that we have been set apart, called to holiness, called to walk with Him in a particular way, that as we are conformed to the image of Christ, the kind of character that we put on display in the world, imperfectly, yes, but the kind of character we put on display is a character like unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we are his brothers and sisters, and we look to him, and we want to become like our older brother. So then just a couple of thoughts as we close tonight. The life the life to which the second commandment calls us. We need to understand that uh, we, how easily we can create idols when left to ourselves. John Calvin famously said we are, we are idol factories. And so we should always have the humility to receive God's word for our good. So uh, the posture that we are to have as faithful Christians is a receiving posture. We should say that in everything, what our first desire would be is to receive the truth from God's word on anything. And that we need to receive from God's word so that he might direct us. And that leads us to the second, the, the second point. First, we are to have a receiving posture. Secondly, we are, we are to have a fierce commitment to scripture, to God's will. What does scripture tell us to do? We are to be fiercely committed to that and fiercely committed to God's will. Ephesians 5, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is God's will for us in anything? And we ask that question, of course, when it comes to worship. And so we go to Scripture. To get the answer, how does God want us to worship Him? To open up His Word, to pray, to sing to Him. All of these things we find in abundance in Scripture. 
And that is how we worship when we come together. And then finally, understand that idols don't bring glory to God, but his creatures do. You know, and kind of having a misconception about some of these things, we could say, well, well couldn't, couldn't these things bring glory to God? Well, no, they wouldn't bring any glory to God. But the creatures of God do bring glory to Him. We can bring glory to God. And that is what we are to be reminded of. In Ephesians 3, verse 21, as Paul is ending that great, play, that great prayer with a benediction, he says, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. To Him be the glory in the church. The church puts the glory of God on display. An idol cannot glorify God, but you can. You can bring glory to God in the life that you live as you receive from Him, as you remain fiercely committed to His Word and His will, as you tether your life to Scripture. You can glorify your God. Throughout the Scriptures, God's people often sinfully try to offer to God the idols that they have made. There's a problem in Old Testament Israel. Look at this, the work of my hands. But instead, what does God say? God would say this, Do not offer to me the vain works of your hands which would reduce me to wood and stone. Rather, offer to me the works of my hands. Offer yourself to me. For you are what I have already made to glorify myself. God made you to glorify himself. And so rather than using our time or our efforts trying to produce something that we think would better glorify Him, we're missing the truth that He's already made us to do exactly that. And He has made us and remade us in Christ to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we may go forward in the world and bring glory to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth, and we give you all of the glory, and we ask that you would teach us about these things, and that we would tether our lives to Scripture and regulate things according to Scripture, and that in doing so, you and your glory would be further in this world. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We end by singing number 300.